Amen. Stay standing, stay standing, stay standing, stay standing. That was the worst, wasn't it? It was terrible that I did that. Okay, if you are a biological female, please sit down. All the women can sit down, please. All the ladies can sit down. Thank you, ladies. All right, ladies can be seated. All right, those of you still standing, you are invited to the men's night on September 29th. I want you to come. I'd love to have you. You can be seated. It's the only reason I had you remain standing. <clears throat> I'm telling you, we have never had a time in our culture and in our country when we have needed men to stand up more than we do now. We're going to hear a great challenge that night. Kyle said it last week. Jeremy said it today. I'll reaffirm we are having a steak dinner. I'm double downing on that, and I hope that it happens. But that's the plan is we're going to have that with us on Friday night, September 29th at 6 p.m. I'd love to have you there. we got a good speaker. We're going to have a good challenge for that. And so we'd love for you to register for that this week. Um, because I just pulled that, I'm going to have you stand again later, okay? I'm going, to, I'm going to give it a few minutes, okay? So enjoy being seated for a moment. I want you to find two places in your Bible, and we're going to be at both of them. John 18 is going to be our introduction, but our text today is going to be in John chapter 21. So find your place in John 18 and then 21 after that. We'll read a few verses here in a moment. If you were to read through the Gospels, you would notice that John's Gospel is a little bit different than the others. Uh, John actually wrote his Gospel about 60 years after it happened. So if Jesus would have been crucified between 29 and 32, 33 A.D., we're looking at about 90 A.D. when the Gospel of John was written, so 60 years after the fact. The others are called the Synoptic Gospels, but John's Gospel is different. If you're reading through John, when you get to the end of chapter 13 and all the way through 14, 15, 16, and 17, John is giving a commencement address, or Jesus is giving a commencement address to the apostles, and John records it for us. They're in the upper room. It would take you probably a couple days to read through it if you're a chapter a day in your devotions, but this really, this event took place just in a few hours the night that Jesus was taken to be crucified. That's the end of John 13 all the way through the end of 17. Um, he is his commencement address because it's the end of one season of his ministry and it's the beginning of something new. He's saying to them, I'm going to go away. Not only am I going to be crucified and rise again, but I'm physically going away. Forty days past that, I'm, I'm gone. You're going to have the comforter, you're going to have the Holy Spirit, but there are some things that you need to understand before I go. And in those chapters, if you've ever studied John 13 through 17, Jesus makes some of the most amazing statements there that are not found elsewhere in the gospel. He starts by saying, all of you are going to be offended in me. Peter gets a bad rap because he's the one that denied Jesus, but he said, all of you are really going to be offended in me. Here are things that Jesus says in this commencement address leading up to our portion of scripture. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I'm going to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you unto myself that where I am, there you can be also. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. John 15, he says, I am the true vine and you are the branches. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you can ask what you will and it's going to be done to you. Uh, in John chapter 17, he says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. He says, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. I've ordained you. He gives them some warnings. He says, if the world hates you, I want you to know that it hated me before it hated you. 
And he closes his commencement address with, in the world, you will have tribulation. But he says, be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. He says all this leading up to the time when he's going to be arrested. In John 18, I want you to look at uh, chapter 18, verse number 17. This is the first denial of Peter. A servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. You see, the implication that she gives there is negative. She didn't say, hey, are you one of the disciples? She says, hey, you're not one of those followers of Jesus, are you? Anybody ever asked you a question like that that was kind of a negative implication? Hey, you're not one of those crazy Christians, are you? You don't go to that, that church, do you? You're not one of those parents, are you? We see that this was not a high-pressure situation. This girl was probably 13 or 14 years old. Peter was not afraid of her, but I do believe he was afraid of her question because of what it meant. Because the implication was if you're a follower of Jesus and they arrested him, they will likely be coming for you as well. Verse 18 of this same chapter is an added detail that John gives that the other writers do not. John 18, 18 says, Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. When I think about a charcoal fire, I like to think of a bonfire. It's getting to be bonfire season, as Jeremy mentioned, that it's, it's becoming fall. And we have a little fire pit in our backyard, and my kids are going to start asking soon, hey, can we do, can we do a bonfire? And when I think of a charcoal fire or a bonfire, um, I, I think of things differently than my wife does. When she says, uh, they say, do we want to do a bonfire? I start thinking, well, do we have wood? Can we make it work? Do I have those little hanger things to do marshmallows or hot dogs? Like, what are we going to do? She thinks differently. She doesn't think so much about that. She thinks, um, okay, well, I actually washed my hair last night. So if we have a bonfire tonight, I'm going to have to wash my hair again tonight, and then I'm going to have to wash the girl's hair, and then it's going to get all on our clothes, and the clothes are going to smell, and I'm going to have to do laundry. So her mind works differently than mine does. I don't think about hair. I don't think about laundry, but she, that's where her mind goes. And so there's a classic difference there between men and women. I, I don't think about that, but you, when you have those fires, those bonfires, those charcoal fires, you get a smell on you that lasts sometimes for days. Uh, like if you were to go to lunch at Don Juan later today, you're going to smell like tortilla chips for the next three days. My wife always knows when I've been to lunch at Don Juan, because when I get home hours later, she's like, you've been to Don Juan today? I said, yeah, is it, is it that obvious? Oh yeah, it's obvious. You smell like tortilla chips. That's what it is. But you get a smell on you with a bonfire or a, a charcoal fire. The word in the Greek is anthrakia, and it only appears twice in the New Testament. Anthrakia. John lets us in on this detail in John 18 that this is not just any old fire. This is a charcoal fire. And the reason he wants to let us know that is because when Peter denied Jesus, the charcoal fire is what warmed him, and he'll never forget that smell. He'll never forget the smell of resentment and denial of when he abandoned Jesus in his greatest moment of need. Look at verse number 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, and they said to him, this is a group of people this time, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. So it was a low-pressure situation the first time because it was a servant girl. Now it's a group of people. He's standing by the charcoal fire. He's warming himself there. And now a group of people asks, are you one of his disciples? And, and again, he denies it. His third denial is in verse 26. Look there. One of the servants of the high priest, 
a relative of the man whose, whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. The stakes were higher. It wasn't a 13-year-old girl. It wasn't a random group of people. This time it was a servant of the high priest who was kin to the guy whose ear Peter had cut off who said, yeah, I'm pretty sure I saw you there in the garden. He was in too deep. The third denial, and he never forgot the charcoal fire where it happened. You continue reading through John. There's not much mention of Peter in verse chapters 18, 19, and 20. Uh, he was there at the tomb with John, but it was nothing personal that happened. He was there later that day on Sunday when Jesus was resurrected. He was there in the upper room when Jesus appeared, but nothing personal happened. He was there a week, eight days later when Jesus appeared again, and Thomas was there, but nothing personal happened between Peter and Jesus. And if we were just reading through the Gospels and there was no John 21, we would wonder, how was Peter such a failure in John 18, then drifted off into obscurity, and now is some powerful preacher in Acts 1? Something had to have happened in between those stories. And what we have is John chapter 21. That's what happened. Uh, if you'd stand with me now, I'm going to read John 21. I'm going to read verses 1 through the beginning of verse 9. John chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, the two other disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. Verse 6, he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. They cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. Verse 9 says, when they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. You can be seated. Thank you for standing. Maybe you've played the game Go Fish but I haven't. I've heard of the game. I'm familiar with it, but I, I've never played before. So I had to do a little research this week in asking people, how do you play Go Fish? Essentially, you keep fishing until you find what you're looking for. That's the basis of the game as, as I could understand it. This can be a quick game when it's played with cards, but it can be a long game when you're playing on the Sea of Galilee all night long. Uh, this is a picture of the Sea of Galilee um, as you can see it, this is right on the coast, and you see out there the Sea of Galilee. This is a particular seashore. This is north area of the Sea of Galilee, probably close to Migdal, I think would probably be the modern-day city that this is closest to. Um, I'll show you a couple pictures later of the Sea of Galilee from Capernaum's perspective. But the Sea of Galilee was often called by other names. In this passage, it's called the Sea of Tiberias. Other people called it the Sea of Gennesaret. Um, people had different names for the Sea of Galilee. It's kind of like Blues Lake. Some of you call it Blues Lake. Some of you call it Blues Creek. Um, if I were to ask you what city Blues Creek is in, some of you would say it's in Blues Creek. Others of you would say it's actually in Stokesdale. Some of you may say it's in Pine Hall. The truth is, you're all correct. If I were to ask you what county 
Blues Creek is in. You would say Forsyth County, and you'd be right, but it's also in Guilford County. It's also in Stokes County, and it also touches parts of Rockingham County. So it's the same sea, it's the same body of water, but it's referred to with different locations. And that's what the Sea of Galilee is here. It's called the Sea of Tiberias, but if you've ever looked at the maps in the back of your Bible, you'll know there's not a whole lot of water options, okay? It's the Sea of Galilee, it's the Jordan River, and it's the Dead Sea. But this is the Sea of Galilee that these guys are fishing on, and it all depends on your perspective. This is the third time that Jesus has revealed himself to his disciples post-resurrection, twice in the upper room, now on the Sea of Galilee. The cast includes Peter, James, and John. They were the sons of Zebedee. These three were singled out, then Thomas, Nathaniel, two others, seven of them total. What Jesus is going to do here in this passage is he's going to teach these men a few lessons. But these lessons, although they are also for these men and they're also for us 2,000 years later, these lessons are primarily for Peter. He had promised to send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. Jesus was leaving, and these lessons, I believe, are still pertinent and applicable for us today so many years later. If you're taking notes today, we're going to look at three lessons from this passage. Number one, I want you to notice it's a lesson in leadership. It's a lesson in leadership. Of the 11 remaining disciples, seven of them were on the boat fishing. Well, that's a majority. Not to mention Peter, James, and John. This was the innermost circle that Jesus had. Every time Jesus separated disciples, Peter, James, and John were in a category by themselves. They saw things that the other nine guys didn't get to see. They participated where the other nine didn't. Uh, One of them is in the Garden of Gethsemane. They went further and stayed longer with Jesus than the rest. One was the resurrection of Jairus' daughter. uh, These three got to see that. The other didn't. The most notable was the Mount of Transfiguration when Moses and Elijah appeared and Jesus was transfigured. Peter, James, and John were there for that. So he says in verse 3, I am going fishing. Now, I like to be more expository, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to unpack this package, but I've looked, I've heard a lot of sermons before preached on this one verse about Peter. Maybe you've heard that too. Um, I've heard sermons preached on this one verse. Some deduct from this verse that this was Peter being finished with the ministry, being finished with his faith, and being completely done with Jesus. One commentator said this, his re- this was Peter's rebellious return to a former lifestyle. Before being called by Jesus, Peter was a fisherman by nature. This is what he did by his trade. Was this his resignation letter and final rejection of Jesus? I mean, maybe. I don't really see that, but some deduct that from this passage. Other commentators say, well, he had to do something. Jesus would appear and disappear at will. They had to eat. Why not eat the fish? Because you're a fisherman. Um, I'm not going to be dogmatic because Scripture isn't really dogmatic on Peter's motives or intentions, but one thing is clear from this verse is that Peter was the leader. Because when Peter said, I'm going fishing, six other guys were like, yep, us too. Sounds good. We'll go with you and we'll go fishing. Was this all seven of these guys leaving the faith? I mean, possibly, but the only thing we can really deduct from this is that Peter is the de facto leader. Where they were following Jesus, they are now following Peter. And this is a terrifying lesson for some of us to learn, is that people are following us. doesn't matter how important, how prominent you are, how big of an influence you are, there's somebody following you. And this is a terrifying responsibility. This principle has application today for husbands, wives, moms, dads, grandparents, teachers, leaders, Christians. Someone is following you. Is that the example that we're leading with? If you want to see something really terrifying, watch your kids mimicking you. It is so cute when they are two and three, 
and it is not cute when they're 11 or 14 or 19 or 24 or 36. It's not fun anymore when your kids mimic you. Uh, I can't speak for you, but I know me pretty well, and I would admit to you today that I am probably the worst version of myself when I'm behind the wheel. Anybody else? Nope, no, nope, you're all liars, I'm telling you. I'm the worst version of myself behind the wheel. I'll give you a couple of illustrations, and if any of these resonate with you, you should have raised your hand earlier, okay? So uh, here's one of them is when I'm driving and the person in front of me is going 10 under, and then when I come around them, they suddenly start going 10 over, which is a 20-mile-an-hour difference. That drives me nuts. Here's another one is uh, when, people, uh, when, when cars wait until the very last minute to merge, like there's been orange cones for miles. They've been told, your lane is ending. You know what they do? They wait till the last possible minute, some of these cars, to merge over into your lane. Here's number one for me. Here's number one is when people sit stopped at a green light. That drives me crazy. I don't know what they're doing. Are they, are they talking to people? Are they messing with the radio? Are they texting on their phones? Some of you are laughing and poking each other. I know because you do it because I've sat behind some of you. We sit at a green light. And for me personally, this is just me. You do what you want to do. When the light turns green, in my head I go, one, two, beep, beep. That's what I do. On the outside, I'm going beep, beep, but on the inside, it's nah, let's go, let's go. I'm the worst version of myself when I'm driving, and I, I can admit that. Notice in each of those examples, I wasn't talking about people. I was talking about cars. I'm not mad at any of the people. I love my neighbor, but I, I hate your cars, some of you. <laughs> the other day, I was turning left onto South Main Street from Hastings Hill, which I do multiple times a day. Uh, because my kids go to school here, and I work here, and I live on Hastings Hill. So I'm, I'm doing this drive all the time. Some of you have done this. You go on Hastings Hill, and you're turning left to get this direction onto South Main. And the scenario is it is 7.51 a.m. The reason that's important is because I got two kids in the car, both of which have to be dropped off here and in their seats by 7.55 a.m. So I'm at the light, a green light, mind you, at 7.51 a.m., and I'm sitting behind one vehicle who's at the green light. There's another vehicle across from them. Both of them have on their left turn signals, and they are both in a stalemate. I don't want to go. You go. Oh, no, please. I couldn't possibly. You go. And it's like, one of you go. Could one of them have gone? Yes. Is it feasible that both of them could have gone? Yes. They're both turning left. Did either one of them go? No. I'm about ready to lose it. I'm about ready to lose it. It's 7.51, and before I can say anything or toot my horn at all, do you know what happens? My eight-year-old daughter leans forward from the back seat and yells, Go, dude! <laughs> they went, and I learned a lesson. That was something that she did not say on her own. She has heard her father say that a hundred times, and maybe her mother. I don't want to take full responsibility there. She's heard me say that a ton of times. Go, dude! And she said it, and that car went, and we went too, and I, I still don't know to this day if they were on time or if they were tardy. I have no idea, but they went. And I thought about that the other day, and I thought, am I, am I only guilty in my Christian life of leading aggressive drivers? 
Is that, is that what my legacy is going to be with my kids? I think about that on a broader scale to all of us who are all raising kids and grandkids and foster kids and people that are following us. And I fear that today with our culture, sometimes we're raising disinterested believers. I think we're raising apathetic Christians. I think we're raising casual followers of Jesus. Yeah, I might go to church. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'll follow Jesus with my life. I don't know. Maybe. I, I fear that we're, we're raising people who are willing to serve when it's convenient. I got to tell you, sometimes I serve around here and it is convenient, and other times it's not. And I don't know. It's raining today. It's supposed to rain later. I don't know if I want to go. I think sometimes we're raising a generation of people who are passionately disengaged and actively disconnected. And I don't think that's the way that it's supposed to be. Peter is on the outs with Jesus by his own choosing. The last mention of Peter before this chapter, one-on-one with Jesus, he's following him from a distance. He was previously told not to do that. He denies him three times, and then he goes out and weeps bitterly. Where was Peter leading these guys now? I want to say before I move on, I have nothing against fishing, but Jesus had bigger plans for Peter than catching fish. And you, you translate the analogy as you want. Jesus has bigger plans for you than catching fish. Not talking about fishing. Talking about the things that you spend your life doing that you may not have been called to do. We spend our life fishing. We spend our life throwing nets and reeling them in and accomplishing nothing. And Jesus says, I've got bigger plans for you, Peter, than to catch fish. You know why Jesus said that to Peter? Why he says that to us? Because I think he's got bigger plans for us too than just catching fish. This was a lesson in leadership, number two. He teaches a lesson in fellowship. Look at verse number three. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing, and they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got in a boat, but that night they caught nothing. They've caught nothing. They're about 100 yards off from shore, It's early in the morning. They can't really see who's on the shore talking to them. They think it could be Jesus, but they don't know that it's Jesus. I don't know if you've ever pulled an all-nighter, but we've got nurses that go to church here, law enforcement, firefighters, college students, young parents, you know. We got people that have pulled all-nighters. But if you you go all, all day, and then you go all night, like you start to get kind of loopy about 4 and 5 a.m. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but... When I was a youth pastor, uh, which was in a former life, I, I used to do these all-nighters, and we would do it from 8 p.m. to 8 a.m., and it was the worst. Like, it was the worst activity that we did, and it was fun at 8 p.m., and man, it was really fun at midnight. You know, those junior hires, is it midnight? I've never stayed up till midnight before. It's like, yeah, it's midnight, and then 2 a.m., it's, you know, starting to slow down. By 3, like, I'm done with these kids. Like, I'm done. I'm ready to send them home. I wanted to call some parents at 4 a.m. By 8 a.m. when mom and dad showed up, I'm like, all right, here's your kids. Let me give you guys a list of other churches in our area that you can go to. That's what I wanted to do. All-nighters are are not fun. Maybe you've pulled an all-nighter recently, but 4, 5, 6 a.m., 6 a.m. is what time it is with these guys. They've gone all day, they've fished all night, and they've caught nothing. Like, it's not like they open their cooler and there's two fish, okay? They've caught nothing. It was demoralizing. It was unfortunate. They've wasted their time catching no fish. Look at verse 5. 
Jesus said to them, children, do you have any meat? They answered him, no. No, we don't have any fish. Hey, you boys catch anything? No. That's the worst, is to be out on the water. Somebody else comes up. You got your pole in the water, or you're throwing nets out there. Hey, you catch anything? No. You can't lie because you got no fish in the boat. Yeah, we caught a few. Let me see what you got. Go ahead, pull it out. They got nothing. They've wasted their time on the water. You ever work really hard in your day and spin your wheels, and at the end of the day, you think, I didn't accomplish anything today. I didn't do anything. I had, a, I had a task list, and I had it all planned out. And between 2 and 4 p.m. today, I was going to do this, I was going to do that. I had these other things I was going to do. I didn't do anything today. I didn't accomplish anything. Can I just tell you, that's life. That's pastoring. That's counseling. That's parenting. That's fostering. That's grandparenting. That's careering. That's empty nesting. That's struggling. It's life. Yeah, I, I don't know if you know this by just knowing me. I'm not much of a fisherman, so I, I got these nets here because I asked a couple people in our church who are fishermen, hey, do you have any nets that I could, I could borrow for a sermon illustration? And all of them were like, no, they got fish guts all over them. You don't want to use my nets. And so I, I got these on Amazon. They're brand new. Just did that to get your attention. Can you imagine? Throw, I thought about throwing these out to see what I would catch today. Can you imagine? throwing a net out. This is a five-foot net. Theirs were probably bigger, wider nets. Can you imagine throwing this out, reeling it in all night? Like, it, it, I'm not talking about the kind of fishing where you throw your line in the water and you just wait for the bobber to drop down, okay? That's not the kind of fishing these guys were doing. Like, this is manual labor. It says Peter was stripped for work. He's got his overcoat off. He's in a t-shirt and shorts, and he's out there throwing his net in the water. Can you imagine how long they must have done this? throwing their net, reeling it in, and every time, nothing. We caught nothing. We are wasting our time out here. But this is life. This is what we go through. When we're at our lowest point, it's often when Jesus steps in, working hard, catching nothing, feeling like we're out of fellowship with him. We're accomplishing nothing. Yeah, I went to church today, but I uh, didn't really get anything out of it. Yeah, I, I parented my kids the best I could this week, but I got nothing to show for it. I hung out with my grandkids this week. They're the worst. You know, this is life. I, I, what have I done? What am I doing with my life? What am I accomplishing? I'm spinning my wheels. I'm getting nothing done. Look at verse number six. This is awesome. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. Okay, these were experienced fishermen. I am not an experienced fisherman. So if I'm out there and some guy says to me, did you catch anything? No. Well, you should cast your net on the other side. Why didn't I think of that? Yeah, that's what I need to do. I just got to go over to the other side of the boat. That's what I got to do. I'm going to cast it down there because all the fish, they've been camping out on the right side of the boat all night. I don't know why I didn't think of that. I'm not an experienced fisherman, but I don't think that's how fishing works, Okay. I don't think they're just all hanging out on one side of the boat. But that's what they are told to do. Imagine me showing up after church today, and I go over to Baptist Hospital, and I walk into an operating room, and I say, all right, guys, let me see what we got here. I start rolling my sleeves up. Yeah, yeah, you're doing it all wrong. And they're like, excuse me, excuse me, who are you? 
Oh, my name's Jason. I'm one of the pastors over at Triad. Yeah. Do you go to med school? No. I've seen some med show, uh, some medical, medical shows on TV. Yeah, that's, that's not good. You can't be in here. Can, excuse me, crazy man. Can you go wait in the lobby? That's about all you're qualified to do. I'm not going to show up to your place of work and tell you what to do, but here's Jesus showing up to these guys on the water and says, oh, yeah, yeah. You, what you ought to do, guys, is you ought to cast your nets on the other side because that's where the fish are. That's crazy that he said that, right? You know what's crazier? They did it, and it worked. Let's say they had caught eight or nine fish before this. It's not a ton, but it would have been enough for them to eat. Do you think they would have been less apt to heed the instructions? Yeah, probably, but they caught nothing. Verse number six, after they had caught nothing, look at verse number Yeah, they cast it. Now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, which was John, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. They didn't know for sure that it was him until he provided the fish. Now, this is where it gets a little convicting to me. Because I've been saved long enough to where I come to expect fish from Jesus. I got people in this room that have been saved longer than I've been alive. Some of you have been saved decades. If you've been saved for longer than a couple years, you've probably come to the point in your life where you are now expecting Jesus to bring in the fish. Hey, God, I I got a problem that I need you to help me fix. I, I got a health situation that I don't understand. I got somebody that I love that's dying in the hospital with cancer. I need you to come through. God, I don't know how I'm going to pay this bill. I don't know how uh, I'm going to take care of this rent that's due. You've been saved long enough to know that Jesus is supposed to provide the fish. And sometimes when he doesn't, we think, hey, what's going on? I've been at this all night. I've been at this for days. I've been at this for weeks. Jesus, I've been at this for months. I I got got no answers. What are you going to do? When are you going to send the fish? That's how we think sometimes. We think that he's obligated to send us the fish simply because we ask for fish. Jesus almost never gives us what we want, but he always gives us what we need, and he gives it to us when we need it most. Here's a question for you, because this was penetrating for me. Do you only have fellowship with Jesus when you're hauling in the fish? I want you to let that settle for a minute. Do you only have a relationship with Jesus when you're hauling in the fish? Or is your relationship with him also when your nets are empty? Because for me, I just got to tell you, it is real easy to have a relationship with Jesus when you're hauling in the fish. It's so super easy. Hey, Jesus, look at all that you've done. Look at these blessings. Look at this fish. Look at how you provided. Thank you, Jesus. I've got gratitude. I've got thankfulness. I, I honor you for what you're doing. Thank you for these fish. It is easy to worship Jesus when you're hauling in the fish. It's not so easy when you've caught nothing. That's where the relationship happens. You ever thank him for the struggle? You ever thank him for the all-nighters that you caught nothing? You ever thank him for the empty nets? I can't tell you how many times I've asked Jesus for something, and he has not given it to me. And I've later looked back, sometimes years after, and thought, oh, that makes sense. Oh, yeah, yeah, I get it. I can acknowledge it, but it's hard to appreciate it sometimes. It says Peter was stripped for work. 
I read several commentators this week. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. Why did he jump into the sea? I have no idea. I wish I could answer that question for you. It's hard to understand Peter's motives in this passage. Maybe it was because one person said he jumped into the sea because they were only 100 yards away, and he swam to the shore faster to get to Jesus. Is that true? Maybe. Some people say he jumped in, and he jumped in on the opposite side of the boat uh, so that he would hide from Jesus. Is that true? Maybe. I don't know. Here's the point. Look at verse 8. After he threw himself into the sea, it says the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. They couldn't even get the net into the boat because of all the fish that they had caught. Principle here is that when we are in fellowship with him, he gives us more than we need. He gives us more than we need. When you're in fellowship with him, he may not give you what you want. He may not give you what you've asked for, but he will always give you more than you need. We're never far from success when we allow Jesus to drive our boat. On the Sea of Galilee, there's a piece of shoreline just outside the city of Capernaum. This is another picture of the Sea of Galilee. And if you, you see the, the hook, the dip in those mountains, uh, the locals will tell you that the wind will whip around those and form like a little bit of a cyclone, and the Sea of Galilee can pop into a storm just like that. But this is one of the ports in Capernaum uh, there on the Sea of Galilee. When Jesus was expelled from Nazareth, his hometown, because they rejected him, he set up his ministry and operation in Capernaum in Peter's home, and this is where a lot of the fishermen lived. They lived in Capernaum because the shoreline was close to town. Uh, there's one more picture I want you to see. This is a picture also of the Sea of Galilee. It's also from the city of Capernaum, but it's just down a little. I think it's a little further south, but this is the place where there's a shoreline and it is believed by the locals who live in Israel that this is the spot where Jesus was standing on the shore and made the charcoal fire. And the reason they believe it was this exact spot, because all the fishermen in Capernaum knew that this spot was a place called the Seven Springs. And the Seven Springs, as the water would run down from the hills, and in seven different places right here on this coastline, there would be little waterfalls Seven different places where waterfalls would run down and empty into the Sea of Galilee. And what all the fishermen in Capernaum would do is they would meet here on this shoreline at the place of the Seven Springs and they would wash their nets. Because it's a lot easier to get fish guts out from running water, which they didn't have, unless it's a waterfall. So the place of the Seven Springs uh, is where they would wash their nets. And it's right here on this shoreline. And so the locals believe that where I'm standing right here taking this photo is where Jesus stood when he's talking to the disciples out on the Sea of Galilee, telling them to come in, telling them to cast their nets on the other side. This is the place where it's believed to have happened. This is where P Jesus would invite the disciples and Peter back into fellowship with him. Now I'm going to give you point number three, and I'm going to spend a few minutes there. But points one and two don't matter unless you have point number three. This is where Jesus was going in his lesson with Peter. This is why we started in John 18, then in John 21, so you would understand the charcoal fire and the significance of it in John 21. Because if you read John 21 without reading John 18, it doesn't make as much sense. But now that you know that the charcoal fire is representative of where Peter denied Jesus, and the only other mention of it is in John 21, you start to see the parallel. It's a lesson in leadership. It's a lesson in fellowship. Number three, it's a lesson in relationship. This is a lesson in relationship. It was a lesson for all seven of the disciples on the boat. 
It was a lesson for us 2,000 years later to understand. But most of all, in context, it's a lesson for Peter. You know what separates us from every other religion and sect and teaching that's out in the world today? You know what separates us from that? Here's what it is, in a nutshell. If you're, you came in today and you're like, hey, it's my first time at Triad. What do you guys believe? I've never been to a Baptist church. What's that all about? Let me explain it to you in a nutshell. Here's what differentiates us from everybody else, is we can have a relationship with our God. That's it. We serve a risen Savior. He's living. He's not someone who died 2,000 years ago and never came back. The difference between us and everybody else is that we believe you can have a relationship with our God. All the other gods that you serve, all the other gods you want to worship, you can't have a relationship with them. They don't invite you to have a relationship with them. They're up here and we're down here. They're gods. But our God, he's up here and he brings us up to where he is. He says, I want to have relationship with you. We were created for relationship in Genesis 1.27. We were saved for relationship in Romans 10.13. We were redeemed for a relationship in Ephesians 1.7. We were called for a relationship in 1 Corinthians 1.2. And we were sanctified to have a relationship with him in Hebrews 10.10. I'm not going to break those down. I'll send them to you later if you want. But we were, we were actually designed and created specifically for the purpose of having a relationship with our God through the person of Jesus Christ. That's what separates us from everybody else. So in our relationship with Jesus, he offers us four things. These are good. I'm going to spend a little bit of time here before I'm done. He offers us four things. Number one, letter A, Jesus offers pardon. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus and you don't know what it's like to have a relationship with Jesus, this is the baseline. This is the starting point. Everything else comes after this. Jesus offers pardon. He offers pardon. Look at John 21, verse number nine. When they got out on land... They saw a charcoal fire in place. This was a specific spot. This was a specific type of fire. And it was for the purpose of invoking a specific emotion. The sight, the smell, it all brought Peter back to John 18 of his biggest failure. It's the same Greek word, anthrakia. It's only used in John 18 and again in John 21. Peter was brought back to the point of his greatest failure before he received forgiveness. Sometimes God will do that with us. He will bring us back to the spot or the place or the emotion or the failure that was the biggest part of our lives. He allows us to feel the full weight before he brings pardon. People can't really get saved until they get lost. If you've ever shared your faith with someone, it's not sufficient to just say, hey, Jesus died for your sins and you need to accept this. They have to understand that they need Jesus. They have to understand that they are a sinner. You have to ask them, hey, you ever, you ever done anything wrong? You ever broke any of the 10 commandments? Do you know what they are? You ever sinned before? You ever said something that wasn't true? You ever done something that, that wasn't right? You have to convince them that they are a sinner. And then and under, explain to them that their sin deserves judgment so that they recognize that they need saving. Because if they don't need saving, why would they choose to be saved if they're not lost? It doesn't make any sense. So what Jesus does is he allows Peter, he offers the one thing Peter could never get past, which was pardon for his failures. And he offers us the same thing. He offers us the forgiveness of our sins. You can't atone for your own sins. You, you can come to me and tell me all of the sins, but I can't do anything about it. 
You, you find the most, the most noble priest in the world, they, they can't do anything with your sins. But if you bring him to Jesus, he can. He's the only one that can forgive sins. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you can be saved. If we confess our sins, he's, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus offers you today a pardon. I can't offer you a pardon for the sins that you've committed, but Jesus can. That's letter A. He offers pardon. Letter B, I can promise you're not going to like this one as good because I didn't like it, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Jesus offers pardon. Letter B, Jesus offers provision. He offers provision. So follow me here because B and C are my, my two favorite points of the whole outline. Look at verse number nine. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. Look at the next phrase. With fish laid out on it. Seriously? What have the disciples been doing all night? Fishing. They've been fishing. What have they not caught all night before Jesus shows up? Fish. They haven't caught any fish. And then what does Jesus say? Cast your nets on the other side. And they do it. And you know what happens? What happens? They catch fish. It's amazing. Can you just see them hauling their nets, hauling their fish to Jesus? Like, this is unbelievable. Here we are. We got our nets, and we're hauling them to Jesus. And they get there, and do you know what they see on the shore? Jesus, you wouldn't believe it. It's you. You told us to cast our nets on the other side. You're not going to believe we found fish. You already have fish. Why did we catch fish if you already had fish? Why didn't you tell us that you had fish? Because if you would have told us you had fish, we would have come. We wouldn't have spent all night spinning our wheels and accomplishing nothing. You didn't tell us you had fish. Why didn't you tell us you had fish? Any of you understanding this? They literally spent all night trying to get what Jesus had on the land that he was cooking up for them. Do you want to know what the principle is? You know what Jesus is saying to them and to us in the nicest way possible? He says, I don't need your fish. I don't need your fish. Man, I'm happy that you guys spent some time together all night last night. I'm happy that you listened when I said to throw the nets on the other side. You, you reeled in, what, 153 fish? You couldn't even get them in the boat. That's amazing. I'm so happy for you guys, but I don't need your fish. We do this. We, we say, Jesus, look at, look at what I brought. Now that I'm signing on to be a Christian, look at all the talents that I'm bringing to the table. Look at all my abilities. Look at what I can do. Look at my education. Look at my experience. Look where I've been. Look where I've done. Look what I can do for you, Jesus. And Jesus says, oh, man, all that is great. I don't need your fish. I didn't call you here to bring your fish because I, I don't need your fish. I, um, I think we get so concerned with our calendars and our schedules and our abilities and our talents and our stuff that we think we're doing Jesus a favor by serving at church. We think we're doing Jesus a favor by becoming a believer. Like, how crazy is that? We think, Jesus, you are so fortunate to have me on your team. And he's like, oh man, I don't, I'm sorry. I don't need any of your fish. I don't need what you brought. Um, 
At our church, we offer connect groups for all sorts of different kinds of people, and every one of our connect groups is, is different. Currently, I'm leading or co-leading three of our connect groups, and, and I love doing it. And if you think I'm putting a plug out there for the fact that we need more connect group leaders, you, you may be right. But I get to lead three connect groups, and we do one on Sunday nights um, that's for new members of our church or people who are new to connect group. They've never been in one. They don't know what one's about. They haven't found a right fit. And we run it in conjunction with Awana. And I love leading my Sunday night connect group. We do it here at the church. And if you're interested, reach out to me. We got a chair for you. Um, I do a Monday night group that meets in Walkertown, Blues Creek area, and then a Tuesday night group that meets in North Kernersville, Oak Ridge. And I love all my groups. And I only am in two of those three a week because that's what Desiree told me I could do. Not all three nights, just two out of the three. I love all of our connect groups, but all of our connect groups are different. And uh, we got some connect groups that do child care and some that don't. We have some that take attendance and some that don't. And those that don't, I know who you are and I'm going to be contacting you this week. We got some that do snacks. We have some that do desserts. We have some that do uh, a full-blown meal. We have some that do crock pots. Uh, we, have some, we have connect groups for singles, college, young families, old families, empty nesters, multi-gen, seniors. We got, we got a group for everybody, and all the groups are different. So about a year ago, Des and the kids were in Colorado visiting family, and I was here, and I didn't have anything to do on a Wednesday night. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to pop in on a couple of our connect groups. I think they were gone two Wednesdays, and I went to a couple different groups. Well, one group, I reached out to the leader and said, hey, I'm going to pop in on your group tonight. It was a Wednesday night connect group. And um, he said, yeah, that'd be great. He said, now, we don't eat before you come because we do a meal. And I said, that's great. Um, can I bring something? I'd love to bring something. And he said, no, don't, don't bring anything. We don't need you to bring anything. And I thought, okay, well, that's fine. And I was thinking to myself, in our groups, we do desserts. So when it's our family's night to bring a dessert, Desiree usually makes something. And when she's not available to make something, and it's my night to bring dessert, uh, what I do is I like to bring fresh, homemade cookies from Lowe's Foods right up here. Um, they got those caramel cookies. I don't know if you've ever tried those, but they're very good. They'll change your life. That's what I usually do as I I offered to, to bring that. And he said, no, no, don't, don't bring anything. We're good. We got it covered. So on the drive, I actually passed that Lowe's Foods. And I thought, no, I, I want to bring something. I hate showing up empty-handed. But he said, don't bring anything. So I'm not going to bring anything. So I showed up to their group on Wednesday night. And um, I don't know if they did this every week. I didn't ask because I didn't want to know. But I showed up to their group, and they had catered a meal from Little Richard's. I'm talking barbecue, smoked meats, all the sides, sweet tea, lemonade. Is it lunchtime? Like, I'm thinking, this is crazy. And then I, I thought, I know what you're thinking right now. How can I get into that group, you know? That's the one that sounds the most appealing. And so then I was stuffed. And at the end, uh, while we were going over the, the sermon review questions, they brought out dessert, which was a huge pan of banana pudding. And everything was great. I enjoyed being in the group. And I drove home, and I thought to myself, how foolish would I have looked to have shown up with this Little Richard's catered feast, complete with fresh banana pudding, and here's my little brown box of cookies that I picked up at the store and didn't even make. I thought, how, how silly would that have looked for me to have shown up that way? And I think sometimes that's how we show up to Jesus, is he's like, hey man, I've got something great in store for you. I just want you to come. I just, I just want you to be a part of what I'm doing. And we're like, well, look what I can bring, Jesus. 
You don't realize who you caught when you reeled me in. That's what we think. And it's not true. Even their best efforts were not needed. The presence of fish on the fire implied that Jesus did not need their fish. He's got his own fish. I don't want to step on your toes, but sometimes we think, I don't know what God would do if I quit. Maybe you've thought that in your heart before. We think, what would this church do if I quit serving here? What if I quit teaching here? What if I quit coordinating here? I'll answer the question that you're thinking. We'd be fine, okay? We'd be fine. We would miss you for a couple weeks. But ultimately, if you quit, we'd be okay. We'd be fine. I get to serve here and wear some hats here. But if this was my last sermon and this was my last Sunday and I left, you guys would be fine. You'd be fine. Because no one is irreplaceable. Everyone can step in and next man up, we're going to find something to do. We've had people leave our church before, and you know what happens to their ministry the next week? Somebody fills in and takes their place. We think that Jesus can't do it without us, and Jesus is saying to them, these are the people who would ultimately build his church. And what does he say to them? I don't need your fish. 153? That's a lot. I don't need any of them. We think we're doing God a favor by serving, but the newsflash is we're not. He doesn't need our fish. Let me get to number C, uh, letter C, because I know you hated B. He doesn't need what you've got. Here's letter C. He offers pardon. He offers provision. This is good. Jesus offers partnership. He offers us a partnership. Jesus doesn't need your fish. He doesn't need my caramel cookies that were made at Lowe's. He doesn't need them. He doesn't need us. Look at verse number 10. Jesus said to them, This is after they had seen the charcoal fire, after they had seen the fish he already had. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. I don't want you to miss this point. Not only does Jesus pardon us, not only does he provide everything that we need in our service to him, but then he says, hey, what what do you got? What do you got? You you reel some stuff in? You got some talents? You got some abilities? Yeah, I'm going to plug you in over here. I, I want you to use your abilities into what I am already doing here. Jesus doesn't need your fish, but he provided the fish that you have, so he wants to use them for the furtherance of his kingdom. Make make sure that you understand that he doesn't need your fish, but he allows you to bring your fish to the table and use them alongside of what he's already doing. He doesn't just pardon us and provide for us, but he allows us to partner with him in the work that he's doing. He lets us bring the fish that we didn't even catch into what he's already doing. Remember, these guys didn't catch anything, okay? And the only reason that any of us have any talents, any abilities, any, any reason to serve at all is not because of us anyway. He gave us the fish. He allows us to partner us alongside him. Nothing you bring to the table is truly yours anyway. But we get caught up in what we did, what we accomplished. Jesus, look at what I caught. Why does Jesus let them bring their own fish? You want to know why? For the same reason he lets you bring yours. And the same reason he lets me bring mine. Because he wants us to partner alongside him. He wants us to, to be able to have a part in what he's already doing. We are not the show. He's the show, and he doesn't need us to run the show, but he gives us talents that we can use. He doesn't need our fish, but he desires to partner with us. That is relationship. Letter D, and I'm done. Jesus offers pardon. He offers provision. He offers partnership. 
This is where we'll close the last couple of verses. Jesus offers peace. Look at verse number 12. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Jesus invites the disciples and Peter, who, Peter, who would have considered himself to be Jesus' worst living enemy at this time. He brings Peter. It doesn't get more relational than breakfast. Hey, think about this with me before I'm done. Think about this. I want you to think about the person <clears throat> in your life who you dislike the most or the person who dislikes you the most, all right? I want you to think about that person. Some of you are looking at me like you don't have a person like that, and that's not true, okay? Everyone has somebody that they dislike or they know dislikes you. Um, some of you, maybe it's me after a sermon like this, but that's fine. You got a person in mind? Now, I want you to imagine calling that person on the phone today and saying, I'd like for the two of us to go to breakfast in the morning. Just me and you. Let's go over to Cagney's and just hang out. No way! You're not doing that. You're not doing that on your worst enemy. Not in a million years would you want to do that. But yet that's what Jesus does here. In this scenario, Peter, to whom he's addressing, the last thing that he said about Jesus was, Jesus, I don't know him. I never heard of him, never been around. No, I'm not one of his followers. And the next thing Jesus says to Peter was, come and have breakfast with me. And the reason is because Jesus offers peace. We won't get into Romans 8, but Paul says, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You have a relationship with him. He doesn't want to bash you over the head for the sins that you've committed. He invites you into relationship with him. You can have peace too. It's found in a relationship with Jesus. Let's pray. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, our worship team's going to lead us in one more song. As I considered this message this week, I was thinking about this. You know, the wildest part of this story is not that they fished all night. It's not that they caught nothing. It's not that they cast their nets on the other side. It's not that once they cast their nets on the other side, they actually caught fish. It's not that they reeled in 153 fish. You know, the wildest part of that whole story is that Jesus has just died and been resurrected. And the one thing that he wanted to do was hang out with these guys. That blows my mind. The fact that Jesus wants to hang out with them. I don't even know the sins they've committed, but I know mine and you know yours. And the wildest part of your story is that Jesus wants to have a relationship with you. I don't get it. I don't know why he wants to have a relationship with me, but he does. And he wants to have a relationship with you. He offers pardon, provision, partnership, and peace. And you know what? Sometimes we respond by saying, go fish. I'm not interested. Just keep doing all the same stuff that's never worked before. Today, Jesus offers us more than fish. He offers us a relationship with him. It's the wildest part of the story. I'm speaking to people today who are leading spouses and children and grandchildren. You are discipling new believers. You're molding the next generation. Are we leading them well? Some of you are out of sync in your relationship with him. What was your fellowship like with him this past week? Others of you here today have never experienced a true relationship with Jesus. That's what separates this from everybody else. 
you can have a relationship with God who created you through the person of Jesus Christ. He didn't come to bring you fish. He won't be surprised by your failures and he is not impressed with what you have to offer. He doesn't want a relationship with you because of the fish that you bring to the table. Rather, he desires a relationship with you because you're you and because he loves you and because he died for you. Is there anyone here today that would say, Jason, I want to be in a relationship with Jesus. I've never experienced that, but I believe that he loves me. I believe that I can have forgiveness of sins only through Jesus. I would like to begin a relationship with God today through the person of Jesus. If that's you, I'm not going to call you out. Would you just slip your hand up? I just want to pray with you. Anyone like that at all? Thank you. You can put them down. You can experience his pardon, and today you can experience his peace. Father, we love you, and we're thankful for the relationship that you want to have with us. We don't understand it, but we're thankful for it. God, I pray for those that are here this morning that are leading others, that are striving to be in fellowship with one another and in you. God, give us a heart to have a relationship with you that passes all understanding. We're thankful that even though you don't need us, you still choose to use us. I pray that we would be a people that is willing and available to be used by you so that we can partner together for your kingdom and for your glory. Father, if there's anyone here today that does not know you as their savior, I pray that you would work on them even in this moment. Allow them to come forward and see me, one of our workers up front. God, we want them to have a relationship with you through the finished blood of Jesus Christ. God will be thankful for that. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me, if you will. The praise team is going to lead us in one more song. The altar's open if you want to come as we sing today.